And as you're seated, please turn in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 1. Just a reminder for the older kids on the back, the racks in the back, there are red folders with sermon notes and outlines to help follow along as we look at the prophet Zechariah this morning. Zechariah is the second to last book in the Old Testament if you're having trouble finding it. If you see a a book whose name you can pronounce, you're probably in the New Testament. So you just want to kind of head to the left and do so slowly until you reach Zechariah. This morning we'll be looking at Zechariah chapters 1 through 6. As I will endeavor to cover as much of those six chapters as I can as I stand before you this morning. Not in as great detail as we normally do. But they are six chapters that are all closely related with one purpose, one series of visions given at the same time to the prophet Zechariah. But to introduce that, we'll be looking at chapter 1, and I'll be reading chapter 1, verses 1 through 6 this morning. Hear now the word of the Lord. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore, say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. This is the word of the Lord. I wonder if you have ever given up on something that wasn't working out. A diet plan. A gym membership a home improvement project, a hobby, uh, something that you committed to for a season and then it just didn't work out and so you gave up. Well, the people of Israel in Zechariah's day were in danger of giving up on God. Partly because it seemed to them like God had given up on them. So why bother? If we have been abandoned by God, why bother? To understand that and to understand the response that the Lord gives through Zechariah, we need to place ourselves in the historical context. If you were with us a few months ago, we went through the book of Esther, seeing uh, what became of the Jews who had, uh, after after the conquering of Israel and Jerusalem by Babylon, Uh, Many of the Jews had been carried away into exile. Now this conquering and this exile was a punishment from God for their unbelief and their rebellion and their disobedience. But they were carried away, and yet God promised that in 70 years the, the way would be opened for them to return. And as we looked at Esther, we saw what became of those who ended up not returning, but staying in exile, and how the Lord blessed them and rescued them and preserved them. But here in Zechariah, we see what becomes of those who did after 70 years, according to the Lord's promise under under the king, were allowed to return to the land that had been destroyed and devastated and consumed by their enemies 
as a result of their sin. God had warned them. He'd sent his prophets to warn them. And finally, because they persisted in their rebellion, he, he wiped them out, punished them, and sent them into exile. But now they have returned, 70 years later, returned to rebuild a broken and burned out land. Now they've returned to the land, but they have not necessarily returned to God. And so he says to them, return to me. Don't just come back to the land. Come back to me as well. Now, what's the difference? What's the difference between coming back to the land and coming back to the Lord? Well, we see in verse 4 of chapter 1, he warns them, don't be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out, thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. In that verse, we see that to return is to follow God. Because if we're not following Him, we are following something else. Whatever it is that your thoughts go to, that your money goes to, that your time goes to, that your hopes and your expectations go to, that's what you're following. Whether it's the American dream, a plan for financial success, a promise of comfort in your golden years, whatever it is, you look to it, you obey the plan that it sets out for you, and you follow it. And God says, no. Turn away from that and come back to me. Return to me and follow my way. Follow my plans. And that call comes with a promise in verse 3. Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. You see, it felt like God had left. Because of their disobedience, because they had not followed the Lord, He had indeed left. Left them on their own. Abandoned them. But not completely. And he said, but if you want me back, if you want me, if you want to experience God in the way you were meant to experience God, you have to come back. And to make the case of why they should leave other things and return to him, God, through the prophet Zechariah, gives a series of eight visions, eight visions in the space of six chapters, describing what it looks like when God returns to his people. In other words, when we return, when we follow God's way, he's promising blessing describing what it means for him to return. What it looks like when the relationship that we have broken with our sin, when that relationship is restored, when God returns, what does it look like? And so in these eight visions of Zechariah that we're going to skim through this morning, we're going to see that God motivates us to faithful living by showing us, giving us a vision of the blessings he promises when we return to him. The first vision that we see teaches us that when God returns, He will defeat His enemies. God will defeat His enemies in Zechariah chapter 1, verse 8. Listen to this vision. I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. And I said, what are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Sounds good, right? The earth is at rest. Rest is good. Unless, unless you're a kid being bullied. And you go to a teacher or a parent or an authority figure hoping 
that if you tell them what's going on, how you're being treated, that they will defend you and protect you and punish this one who has tormented you. But the next time you see this bully, what are they doing? They're laughing. They're smiling. They're not in trouble. They're at rest. That kind of rest we don't like. And that's the kind of rest being described here. The patrol has gone unto all the earth to witness the state of the nations, the nations that had abused and tormented and devoured and persecuted and destroyed God's people and their homes. And they want justice. And yet those nations are at rest. They're at ease. They're fat, dumb, and happy. And nothing is wrong with them. And we know that's what's going on here because in the next verse, verse 12, the angel of the Lord says, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you've been angry these 70 years? That, res- that question makes no sense if rest is a good thing here. But rest is not a good thing. Rest means judgment hasn't been done. And so the angel says, God, why aren't you standing up for your people that you claim to love? Why aren't you defending them? Why aren't you having mercy on them? You know, the followers of Jesus have a reputation of being a uh, play nice and, and don't get mad at anybody and get along with everybody kind of religion, right? I mean, that's what we're supposed to do. If somebody offends us, does wrong to us, we are reminded with verses like Matthew 5, 38, that Jesus says an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. And if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other one also. We're reminded to turn the other cheek. We are reminded that on the cross, Jesus forgave even those who were putting him to death. And yes, absolutely it's true. We are to turn the other cheek. We are not to respond with violence. We are to forgive even those who have done us harm. But that does not mean, listen, that does not mean that we should not and do not crave vengeance. See the looks. Did my pastor just say that we should want vengeance? Yes, I did say it. And I'm going to double down. I remember a speaker that I heard once in college said, it's never a good thing to try to be more spiritual than God. And at times we do that, don't we? We want to be nicer than God actually is. Because the God of Scripture is a God who punishes, as we saw in our confession of faith this morning. Yes, he is slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, but he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Just look at the Psalms. I could have chosen many Psalms to present here. Just one of the many I could have chosen. Psalm 58, verse 10. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance of God on evil. It is a righteous thing to rejoice in the punishment of the evil ones. When it comes to sin and evil, we should want vengeance we should in fact desire it if we fail to do so we fail to reflect the heart of god if we hate evil the way god hates evil then we will want to see evil punished but zechariah and the people of his day are frustrated because they don't see that happening yet and when they don't see the judgment happening quickly enough when we don't see judgment happening quickly enough, what happens? We, we can lose heart, can't we? We can get bitter. 
We can be tempted to give up because there is no justice. And so God gives His people a vision to assure them and to encourage them to wait and not give up because the promise is that God will avenge. It is God's job to get revenge on people, not ours. And He promises that He will do so. Let's look how the visions continue. Verse 13 and 14 of chapter 1, the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. And so the angel who talked with me said to me, cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. So first, the assurance that no, despite the delay in judgment, God is still jealous for his people. He's still on their side. And then he gets another vision. And this time in the vision, he sees four horns and a horn in prophecy and in scripture symbolizes strength and might. He sees four horns, and then he sees four craftsmen or smiths, people who are uh, able to, to change material and who have hammers to craft things. And look what happens in verse 21. I said, what are these coming to do? Asking about the craftsmen coming with their tools. And he said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. So these are the, these are the nations that persecuted God's people. And these, the craftsmen, have come to terrify them to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah and to scatter it. So this next vision is the promise that despite injustice, despite the nations being at rest, God is going to defeat His enemies. And in fact, in the last vision in this series, chapter 6, verse 8, He cried to me, Behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. In chapter 6, we see the vision of the horses again. And he says, look, they've come back from the north where those nations are that persecuted Israel. And now I'm at rest. Okay, when, when judgment was still lingering, when evil was unpunished, God's spirit was not at rest. But now is at rest because God has defeated his enemies. Now, now what does that promise do for us? The promise that God will defeat His enemies. Well, far from making us into bitter and angry people, far from turning us into judgmental um, snobs who, who chuckle as we think about what's going to happen to those people. <laughs> God's going to get them. Now, that should not be how this engages your heart. This promise that God will defeat His enemies ought to make us people of peace. In Romans chapter 12, we are told, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Brothers and sisters, the gospel gives you the power to turn the other cheek. It gives you the power to forgive it gives you the power to pray for those that persecute you and to treat them mercifully though they do not deserve it because you know that one of two things will happen. Either your enemy, the person who hurts you, the one who offends you, the one who sinned against you, either they will be won over to Christ. They will repent and find grace and all the punishment and judgment that they deserve will be placed upon Christ on the cross, and He takes their place under judgment just as He took your place under judgment for the judgment you deserve. So either that happens, or if they do not repent, and even if they escape justice in this life, 
God promises they will not escape judgment forever. And God, not you, not me, not the courts, not the nations, not society, God will judge them. And His judgment will be just and inescapable. So we can be patient and we can be forgiving when people hurt us. Because we know that God will either forgive their sins in Christ or punish their sins in the end. Either way, that frees us to be patient, to be forgiving, to be merciful. The Gospel gives us that power. That's the first assurance of what we can expect when the Lord returns. He will defeat His enemies. Therefore, we can be patient. The next thing we see is something we see when we pull out the mirror. Because we're very easily offended, angered, and hurt by the wrongs out there, but we need to be careful not to ignore and neglect the wrongs in here, in our heart. For though God's people could rightly appeal to God for justice to judge the nations that had so violently devastated them, let them not forget, as Zechariah reminds them, that they got into that mess in the first place because of their own wrongs, because of their own sin. In verse 4 of chapter 1, Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. We practice a confession of sin during our worship for this very reason. It's so that we can be reminded that though, though I have been forgiven by God, I still need the cleansing that He provides. I still disobey. I still go my own way. I still need to be called to return to Him. Let's look at the, we're going to skip to chapter 5 and look at the visions. There's two visions in chapter 5 I want to look at. The first one, he's, again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a flying scroll. And he said to me, what do you see? And I answered, I see a flying scroll. And its length is 20 cubits and its width 10 cubits. And he said to me, this is the curse that goes over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side. And everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. The point here is that the word of God, the commandments of God still linger over the people. They do not change. Though God intends to punish their enemies, they are still called to obey. And this giant flying scroll, 18 feet wide and 36 feet long, reminds them of what God has called them to do. And all who fail to obey that will be cleaned out, he says. They'll be punished. They'll be removed. And so, if God is going to be anything to us other than a judge, we need, we need help. <laughs> we need His mercy. And so Zechariah is also given a vision to show what God intends to do about His people's sin. The next vision, after the flying scroll in Zechariah 5, the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, lift up your eyes and see what this is that is going out. And I said, what is it? And he said, this is the basket that's going out. And he said, this is their iniquity, their sin in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. And I, need, I need you to understand what this image is. There's this big basket, and in the basket is a woman who represents sin, and there's this heavy lead cover that they, they shove wickedness down in the basket and then put the lid down on to keep wickedness down in there. It's this imagery of just force. 
keeping sin in the basket. And then what do they do in the next verses? Zechariah 5, 9, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward. Their, the wind was on their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. And I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they taking the basket? And he said, to the land of Shinar, that was far away in Babylon, to build a house for it. And when it is, this is prepared, they'll set the basket down there on its base. So what, what the vision is describing is that God is taking the evil of the people, the sin, the iniquity, putting it in a basket, forcing a heavy cover on top of it, sealing it shut, and then picking it up and carrying it far away from the people. God will remove His people's sin. What a promise. God will Himself remove our sin, not just tell us to stop sinning, not just give us a good example of what a sinless life would be like. God Himself will remove our sin that's the only way we can be sure that we'll be free from sin is if God takes our sin away because we can't do it ourselves. History teaches us that. Personal experience teaches us that. But even if by some chance we could get through a day of perfect obedience, what assurance do we have that the next day would be the same? It's like a child I know that I will not name who one day came home from the dentist at a very young age with a perfect checkup. No cavities. And that evening I said, it's time to brush your teeth. And she said, no, I don't need to anymore. I got no cavities. Well, yeah, but it's going to come back. You have to keep at it. And if it was up to us to remove our sin, we could never rest. God has to remove our sin. And that's exactly what he promises to do. In Psalm 103, and uh, back on the slides, after I read verse 11, I want you to hang on. Don't go to verse 12 right away, okay? He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love towards those who fear Him. Those two verses alone give us the impression that in dealing with our sin, God simply indulges it. He loves us so much that He just doesn't count it against us. He doesn't punish it. But no, verse 12 goes on to say, as far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. That's what's happening in this vision of Isaiah. The basket containing the sin of the people is picked up and carried far away to the east. As far as the east is from the west, He removes the sin of the people. That's what God does for us in Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5 describes how for our sake, God made Jesus to become sin, even though He Himself was not sin, whom He knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. He puts our sin on Jesus, and then Jesus takes it away. He removes our sin. But then experientially, it happens day to day for us by the Holy Spirit in Psalm 23. It describes how God leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. He he walks me on this path away from sin, a path of righteousness. Or as Philippian, uh, yeah, Philippians 2.13 describes it, God works in you to will and to work for His good pleasure. God works in you to take your sin away, 
leading you in a path of righteousness, doing what he calls you to do. And finally, in Revelation 21, we see in the new heavens and the new earth, nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So what do we see? On the cross, Jesus defeated sin and fully removed it. In our lives, the Holy Spirit leads us daily away from sin. And in heaven, there will finally, completely forever be no more sin. When God returns, He will remove His people's sin. What does that mean for us today, though? Well, very briefly, it means, number one, don't trust your good, clean living. Short, keep it up, you know. Do what's right. Obey the commandments of God. Follow in His ways. But never in your heart so thoroughly link your acceptance before God, your image before other people, your sense of self-worth. None of those things should be tied to and linked to your capacity to do things right. You alone will not be able to remove your sin. Only God will. But yet, don't give up. Don't give up because God has promised that your work will not be in vain. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So don't give up because God has promised He will remove your sin. There's one more thing we need to see in these visions about what it means for God to return to His people. Because forgiveness of sin, the removing of sin, is not the end game. It's not the final goal. It's not the point, the main thing God wants to do. If you were to ask many people, including, I suspect, many Christians, uh, what is Christianity all about? You're likely to get an answer, something like, well, it means that Jesus forgives my sins or because of Jesus, God forgives my sins. And, And that is not false in and of itself, but it stops short of what the point is. You see, Christianity and the Christian faith and salvation and the grace of God, the end goal is not forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins is one step. It's the means to the greater end, the greater goal, the greater purpose that God has in mind, which is fellowship, connection. God is relational in His nature. That's one of the beautiful observations about the Trinity. If God was not triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then relationship would have been new. It would have been something He had to create when He created us. But because God always existed three in one, God always was relational. It defines who He is. And God, who is relational, moves towards relationships with His people. And our sin puts up a wall between us. It makes it so that God cannot dwell with us. Because if God is holy and we are sinful, then any relationship we have will end in judgment. And so our sin separates us from God. So in order to fulfill our created purpose, which is to have fellowship with God, He has to remove our sin. So that's what I mean when I say forgiveness of sins is not the point. It's a beautiful thing, but it's a step in the process to what is greater, which is God will dwell with His people. God will be with His people. That's the promise. And so every biblical description of God's perfect kingdom includes imagery 
and description of God being with his people. Let's look at the in uh, one of the visions that comes up is uh, described begins with describing uh, to Zechariah. He sees a young man measuring out the city of Jerusalem. He's like got this giant, enormous measuring tape, and he's measuring the length and the width of the city because they want to build a wall. Jerusalem had been destroyed. If you're an ancient Near Eastern city, you have to have a wall or you are vulnerable. People will just come in and take whatever they want. Armies will not, they'll just walk right over you. You have to have a wall. And so in, in this vision, Zechariah sees a young man measuring Jerusalem so that they can build a wall. And look what happens in Zechariah chapter 2, verse 3. Behold, the angel who talked with, me came, talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, Run, say to that young man, to that young man measuring the city, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it, and I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. So instead of a big stone wall, the vision is that God himself will surround and protect his people because he's going to be present with them. But not just to protect them, he's going to live with them. Later on in verse 10 of chapter 2, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come, and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people, and I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Twice in those verses, he says, I will dwell in their midst. If there's one thing that the pandemic taught us, I'm not going to go off on all the other things the pandemic taught us. If there's one thing, good thing the pandemic taught us, it's the importance of embodiments. That a Zoom birthday party is not the same as having people in the room with actual cake. That a Zoom conference call doesn't work as well as sitting across the table and sharing ideas. That having your class online just doesn't work the same way as, as in person. Embodiment, being physically present, being there, makes a huge difference. Reminded me of uh, years and years and years and years ago when I was beginning to teach my children to be good Pittsburgh Steelers fans, and we were watching the game and seeing this player run across the field, and I'm, I'm cheering, and I'm trying to get them cheering. Yeah, go, 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 go. And I remember one of my daughters turned to me and said, can they hear me? I was like, no, honey, they're, they're far, far away. Oh. You know, she had hoped that if she was loud enough, like her cheering was actually spurring this man on as he ran with all of his heart. And if I just cheer loudly, I'm making a difference. No, we, we feel like we want to be there for our team. But when you're in your living room and they're 500 miles away, you're not really there for your team, are you? Not in a way that makes a difference. I mean, even somebody cheering in the stands is making some bit of a difference with the volume, right? So being physically present, being there, matters. And that's what God promises. He's not just there for you. He's there. He's in your midst. And so the promise is that when God returns in a very real way, he's going to be with his people, which we first see fulfilled in Jesus Christ. In Colossians 1.9, we're told that all the fullness of deity dwells bodily in Jesus. When Jesus walked on earth, he was here physically with God's people. And as Randy showed us last week, the Holy Spirit, which according to God's promise, 
indwells, lives in every believer. The Holy Spirit is the literal, real presence of God with you. What difference does that make, though? What does it matter? Well, Zechariah was preaching to a community that had work to do. They were back from exile. They had to rebuild the city and the walls and the temple and the homes and defend it. They were hindered by fear and uncertainty and intimidation. And they, they, they didn't have the resources to do it. And they're looking around at the neighboring nations knowing that anybody could just walk in at any time and just plow right over them. And in chapter 4, the vision that occurs there, the Lord says to the governor, Zerubbabel, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Now that word hosts is interesting. Whenever the Bible calls God the Lord of hosts, it's speaking of God as the leader of the heavenly armies. And again and again, Zechariah calls him the Lord of hosts, telling you what's yet to come, that God will defend and be there and fight for his people and give them strength. So God says to the people in one of his visions, it's not by might, not by power, but by my spirit that you'll do this. I will give you the strength because I'm going to be with you. And look what happens. Just as Zechariah and another prophet Haggai give us the prophetic visions of what's going on, Ezra and Nehemiah give us the historical account. And see what Ezra says in Ezra 6.14. The elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo. So Zechariah and Haggai are prophesying to the people, telling them, God has promised to be with you. And what happened? The people were encouraged and strengthened, and they did the work. Because it wasn't by might, it wasn't by power, it wasn't by a big bank account, it wasn't by a savvy media presentation, it was by the Spirit of God that the work got done. Christian, we are called, likewise, to a task much bigger than ourselves. The task of laboring for and building God's kingdom. Of lifting up the weak and downtrodden. Of sharing the good news. Of building one another up in discipleship. It's a great task, and we do it in the midst of fear and intimidation and uncertainty and doubting our own capacity and ability to do it. And yet, we have the same assurance that God will be with His people. In Colossians 1.29, Paul describes his labor for the sake of the kingdom. He says, For this I toil, struggling with all my energy. Is that what it says? No. It doesn't say struggling with all my energy. Paul says, I labor for the kingdom of God, struggling with all His energy that so powerfully works in me. Christian, whatever work in the kingdom of God you're called to do, Praying for your enemies, supporting a loved one, raising up children, giving sacrificially, taking on a work of service that you don't think you can do. Whatever it is that you are called to do, you don't do it by your own might. You don't do it by your own power. You don't do it in your own strength. You do it by the strength of God that works in you, by the Spirit of the Lord that He has promised and given. And nothing is too hard for God. If you were to go across the street after this and cross the tracks and head over, am I doing the right direction here? More or less, yeah, head over there to Signature Sweets or Kilwins, you know, one of those ice cream and sweets places. 
You can look at all the different flavors of ice cream for sale. I'm sorry, I'm making some of you really hungry right now. I feel my own stomach crying out for some ice cream. You can look at all the flavors that they have, and, and you can ask, and at most of these places, they'll, they'll give you a teeny tiny little spoon, take a teeny tiny little scoop, and let you taste it. Just a taste, right? Just enough of that, you know, coconut, pineapple, ice cream to taste the coconut and the pineapple, but not enough to make you even feel like you've swallowed anything, right? It's a taste. What's the point of that? The point is to show you what you can expect if you commit. To show you, to get you on board by giving you a taste. And it works, doesn't it? Well, that's, that's what you and I have right now. God has given us a vision of what to expect when He returns. He's even given us a taste of it, defeating His enemies at the cross, removing sin through our daily growth and our daily sanctification, and dwelling with us by His Spirit in a real and meaningful way. But it's still, believe it or not, just a, a taste. The total victory of God over His enemies is, is still on the horizon. The total removal of sin awaits the new creation and the full presence of God with us is yet to come. But He shows us what to expect. He gives us a taste. Why? Well, just like the ice cream shop, they want to inspire you to commit. See how good this is? Don't you want to buy a big giant bowl of it and take some home as well? The visions of Zechariah 1-6 through are meant to not only tell you what to expect, but to motivate you to commit. As he said in verse 3, return to me and I will return to you. Let me show you what that will look like when I return to you so that you will be inspired, motivated to return to me. Remember, in Zechariah, returning is about obedience. It's about faithfulness, living according to God's path, God's way. If we want to experience the good things that he lays out in these visions, we'll have to continue on the path of the God who promised them. And for those who are living on that way, those who are, who are persevering, those who are committed, who've bought in, who've invested. These visions, these promises are to inspire you to keep on keeping on, to keep at it, to not lose heart, to be reminded of the, the fulfillment that awaits you. You have the taste now. Hang on, because something greater is coming, something that fulfills all that was promised. But you have a taste so you'll know and be committed and inspired to return until the day when He returns. As we wait that day, let us pray, let us look to the vision that He has given, and let us be thankful. Heavenly Father, thank You for what You have done in Jesus Christ. Defeating Your enemies. Taking away our sin. Dwelling with us. Thank you for the way in which you continue to do these things, though just in such a small way compared to what you have promised to do. Help us to keep before us the vision of the future that you have promised, that we may be faithful in the present that you have called us to. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ.